We'll continue in our series this morning on the law of God. If you will, turn to the book of Romans. We will look at several passages in Romans. The title of my sermon is Law, Gospel, and the Holy Spirit. Our key words for worshipers in training are spirit, sanctification, and obedience. We're at a very important place now as we are looking at the law of God. There are several things that we have considered over the past several weeks. And this morning we are going to bring some of that together before we go into next week looking at each of the Ten Commandments. We have looked at and talked through the use of God's law what it is useful for, how God has intended it for us. And then the last two weeks we spent looking at two errors when it comes to the law of God. The first week we considered the error of antinomianism. Those who would look to the Scriptures and deny the use, the importance of God's law. The consideration that, well, God's law was given to those in the Old Testament, and therefore it is no longer of use to Christians today. We identified this as an error. We looked last week at the opposite extreme of legalism. Those specifically who would look at the law of God and place all of their hope in a legal obedience for their salvation. Those who have a trust in their own abilities to uphold God's law in order that they might be saved. This was the error we identified of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day and most certainly is the error of many religious people today. There are several things that we established that are important for us to remember as we move forward. Remember first that we identified that the judicial and the judicial civil law of God along with the ceremonial law of God has been fulfilled in Christ. And while there are moral principles from those that apply to us, that they have been fulfilled. But the moral law of God, which we define as the Ten Commandments, is still binding on us today. Given to man at creation and required of all men to look to that we might live. Secondly, we identified that fulfillment of the moral law of God, for one to completely fulfill God's law as He has designed it, would be to live in absolute perfection. And because of sin, because of the fall of mankind, that we are unable to live up to God's perfect standard of godliness and righteousness. And so God has offered a way God has offered a fulfillment of His law in Jesus Christ who has perfectly lived up to God's complete and total standard of law civilly, ceremonially, and morally. And so as a result, Christians have received the benefit of Christ's righteousness, Christ's right standing before the Father, Christ's obedience to the law, 
has been imputed to us, has been granted to us, has been placed upon us, that we are justified. This is our justification in that time, in that moment, declared righteous and therefore given a right standing before God the Father. And now, as a result, we are free to live in obedience to the law of God with a love for the law of God. And this is the process we call sanctification. And so we're going to address this morning how it's possible. How is it that knowing while we will do it imperfectly, are we able to walk in accordance with God's law? How do we obey God? While we're redeemed, we know we are still very far from perfection, and yet the desire to fulfill God's law and walk in accordance to what He has commanded rests in our hearts. So how do we do that? What does God do to us and in us that gives us a heart of obedience? We're going to look at several places in Scripture We'll begin in the book of Romans. And I want to lead up to where we're going to be specifically. In the book of Romans, Paul lays out all of what we are considering in great detail. Romans 1 through 5, these five chapters, Paul outlines the sinful condition of man, our complete and total depravity. That each of us are born in a state of sin. That our hearts are corrupted and darkened. That we are unable to please God. And everything that we do and everything that we want is focused on self. Our own desires that are opposed to the will and desire of God. Now this does not mean that man is as evil as man can be. For God restrains that. That is one of the uses of his law, to restrain evil within us. But it does mean that we are capable of far greater evil than we commit and that we are totally in opposition as enemies of God. As Ephesians 2 tells us, we're born. We are dead in transgressions and sins. We are born into death according to God. And Paul continues to outline in these five chapters, he moves on to explain the work of God in our justification, that he has made us right before himself through the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. He goes on in Romans chapter 6 and he begins to, de- to deal with those who are justified, those who are in Christ, those who are believers in Christ. They have been made right before God by the blood of Christ and now move forward into the process of sanctification, this progressive work of God to make us to be more and more like Christ. So our justification is a passive work on our part. This is something that God does to us, in us. God takes out a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Our old desires, our longings to rebel against God and who He is, have been replaced with the love for God, convictions over our sins, 
a desire to please and honor God and to live up to all that he has commanded us. This work of justification is passive. We do nothing. God does all. He even causes us and gives us the desire for repentance. It is he who is working within us the very faith that is required for our justification. When we are justified, we move into an active work of sanctification. This is our pursuit of godliness. This is our pursuit of righteousness. This is our looking to the Word of God and seeing what God commands and therefore seeking to live according to all that God has commanded. This is our sanctification, our growing in maturity as believers in Christ in our pursuit of godliness and righteousness. And so as Paul is outlining this in chapter 6, he comes to consider some arguments that may go against the very fact that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. So we'll begin reading in Romans chapter 6, looking at verse 1. Romans 6, 1. The Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried. Therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk newness of life. And so he looks at this great work of justification and he asks, does this give us complete license? Because we're in Christ, does that free us up to simply do whatever we want regardless of the Word of God, regardless of God's commands? And he says, by no means. If we are truly justified, we have a newness of life. We have a new heart, we have new desires, we have new longings that are going to bring us somewhere that our former life did not, and that is toward God, not away from Him. When one is a Christian, when one is justified, there will be evidence in their life. The Bible is abundantly clear about this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we will be new creations. We will have a new heart. We will have new desires. This does not mean that we will live in sinless perfection, but we will have different desires. We will have different longings of the heart. And so one who is justified will show their justification in their life by the fruit that is born. And so Paul looks at this great work of justification and says it's not something that frees us up to sin because grace will abound in the end. It is something that secures our salvation and changes our hearts and our minds that as we walk with the Lord that we will live a newness of life. It will look completely Different, And then he goes on in Romans chapter 7 to explain that as a result of our justification in Christ, we are not under the weight of the law. 
In other words, we are not justified by law. We are justified by Christ. Our being made right with God is through the Son, Jesus Christ, and not through our own personal obedience. We do not earn our salvation through obedience. We do not merit anything from God. God does not owe us anything as a result of anything we have done other than His wrath and perfect righteous judgment. So we are saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law. Our works, our law-keeping does not save us. It never has and it never will. So then Paul asks, beginning in chapter 7 and verse 7, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produces in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. Through what is good? In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what can be done? What hope is there for the Christian? Is it true what Paul says in verse 18? For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. God's changed my desires and my justification. 
He's given me a new heart. I have a new longing to please God. But I don't have the ability to do that. Well, if this is true, then what hope is there? Yes, we are justified, but as a result of our justification, we are given these new desires and those desires and our actions in the flesh often don't match up, do they? If we're truly believers in Christ, we want to do what's godly, we want to do what's righteous, but we don't always do that. So often, we don't. So what hope is there for us? Are we left to this frustrating tension between what I do and what I want to do, but the two never align with one another? Paul goes on, chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've never dwelled on that verse, I encourage you to do so. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Jesus Christ and His cross work addressed our need before God, the holy judge of the universe. We needed something to deal with our guilt before the judge, and Jesus dealt with it finally and completely. And now Paul shows us the need that we have within ourselves because of our sin, because of our depravity, because of our inability. We are so depraved, sin reaches so deep that we cannot even bring ourselves to do what our new desires in Christ are crying out within us to do. But I absolutely love it when I get to present such a problem in the text, but not end it with a period. I get to say, here's the problem, but what did God do? Better stated, what is God doing? 
He is sanctifying us. How? How does the law of God work to sanctify us? And what is God actively doing to make that happen within us? It is the Holy Spirit who works within us to set us free from guilt and condemnation. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us walk in accordance with our new desires in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us to delight in the law of God. I want to deal specifically with verses 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 8. Look back at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What could the law not do? The law could not free us from sin and death. The law could not free us from condemnation. It's the word he uses in verse 2. What the law could not do, the Holy Spirit did. There is no law that could free us from condemnation, that could free us from sin, that could free us from death. The law could not do anything for condemned sinners. In fact, the law itself pronounces our condemnation. The law was not designed to set sinners free. This is a very important thing to remember if we're ever going to read our Bibles correctly. And Paul makes this argument through the book of Romans. The law of God after the fall of mankind was never intended to set sinners free. Now, what did the Jews think their salvation was based upon? Law keeping. But this is why Paul makes a big distinction between when Abraham was counted as righteous and when he was circumcised. Which came first? His law keeping or his standing in righteousness? Well, it was his standing in righteousness. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, we see that Abraham believed the promise of God. He had faith in God's promise, and as a result, the Scriptures tell us, he was counted as righteous. And it's not until two chapters later that we see Abraham is circumcised. In other words, Abraham's salvation, his right standing before God, had nothing to do at all with whether or not Abraham kept the law of God. He was justified by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. And I know some of you are probably a little blown away by that right now because that's not what we often think as we read the Scriptures. But the law of God was never designed after the fall to provide a way of salvation for mankind. It could not because man is fallen and unable to uphold the perfect standard of God's holiness. The law was designed, as we've already considered, for three reasons. To drive us to our understanding that we cannot fulfill God's law. We need someone to do it for us. We need a righteousness other than our own. The law of God serves to restrain evil because it's written on the conscience of every man. The law serves the Christian. It gives us a standard of life. It gives us a Christian ethic. 
how we are to live in order to please God. It shows what sin is and our failure to live up to it and to tell us we are condemned and shall die apart from a Savior. So remember, there is nothing wrong at all with the law itself. Paul says that over and over and over again. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is external to the law. The law has no redemptive power whatsoever. The problem is with our sinful flesh. The problem is intrinsic to fallen man. There is no defect in God's law. The defect is in every man. So the law is rendered unable to do what we need because of fallen humanity. The law of God remains perfect. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we looking to the law for our salvation? If so, we're looking in the wrong place. We cannot live in perfect obedience. This is what the law could not do. The law could not offer a way of salvation that we were able to Obtain. Look back at the second part of verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is what God did. What the law could not do, God did. Did God took the initiative to rescue man from his fallen condition. I want to see, I want you to see in this passage that salvation is Trinitarian in nature. This is all over the Bible and we should work hard to see the Trinity in the text. But here's one that is more clear than some other places. All three persons of the Godhead are at work right here in these two verses. We see in verse 3 the work of the Father. The Father is sending His own Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent by the Father. So the Father is at work in a sending work. Now we see the work of the Son. Verse 3 tells us He took on flesh. This is the incarnation. God became man to dwell in our midst. And so we see the work of the Son taking on flesh. And verse 4 telling us that He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. We could not do it. Christ did it. Jesus became a man so that He could come under the standards of the law and fulfill it perfectly. So here is the work of the Son. To become man to fulfill God's perfect requirement of the law and we see the work of the holy spirit as well verse 4 the holy spirit causes us to walk in the spirit and to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law within ourselves and so the holy spirit is actively at work in the life of every believer as a result of our salvation But what the Holy Spirit does is dependent upon what the Son has done. Just as what the Son has done is based upon the Father's sending Him. And so we see the work of the Godhead in salvation. The law could not destroy sin, so God Himself 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has destroyed the power and the stronghold of sin for us. Where did He do it? In heaven? No. No, the end of verse 3, He did it in the flesh. What the law could not do, God did in the flesh. He fulfilled the law in the flesh, and now He has given each of His children the Holy Spirit that we can live according to the righteous requirements of the law for our good and for His own glory. So there's the answer to our question. How does a Christian relate to the law? How does the law of God work to sanctify us? And what is God actively doing to make it happen? The answer to all of this is the Holy Spirit. The crux of Paul's argument from Romans 7 into Romans 8 is that if the Spirit of God dwells within us, we will desire to do the will of the Father. Even though we are in the flesh, even though we do not always live up to what these desires that He has given us dictate. There is a battle. There is a war that is waged by the Christian against the sinful desires of the flesh. Sometimes we're successful in some measure. Other times we're not. But even when we're fighting the battle well, we are still not free from sin. So we absolutely need the Holy Spirit to be at work within us and through us to walk in the Spirit and to live according to what God has commanded. Remember, we're not talking about law keeping. The law was kept by Christ. We're talking about law fulfilling. In other words, we're not under the law and bound by the law as a way to our salvation, but we live lives that fulfill the law because this is what pleases God. This is what the heart of the Christian desires. And so the law of God and the Holy Spirit are at work together. The Holy Spirit within us reminds us of the law, magnifies the law, gives us a delight in the law. And when we are walking in the Spirit, we are pleasing God. Well, how do you suppose that is? How do we please God? By looking to His law as a standard by which we live our lives. I am walking in the Spirit and pleasing God when I do not only not commit adultery in the physical sense, but when, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not overcome with lust for a woman that's not my wife. I'm walking in the Spirit and I please God when I not only do not kill my neighbor, but when, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I do not hate him and have a desire to see evil done to him. I am walking in the Spirit and I please God when I not only do not steal from my neighbor, but when by the power of the Holy Spirit I seek His welfare and I protect His home as I would do my very own. You see, I cannot do these things apart from the Holy Spirit. I cannot fulfill God's law. I cannot live a life pleasing to God in godliness and righteousness without the Holy Spirit indwelling me and working in and through me to sanctify me and bring me to a place of obedience. So Paul is very passionately arguing that we live free from condemnation. 
We're no longer under the law as a motivating drive or a motivating force in our lives. Remember Philippians 3? Paul says, If anyone ever thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. What word does he use? Blameless. The driving force in the life of Paul when he was Saul was the law of God. Now, it was an external fulfillment of God's law. And externally, he was everything he thought he needed to be. But, he clarifies in Romans and in Galatians, as a result, he was condemned. Why? Because he did not have Christ. He only had his own righteousness. And so he goes on in Philippians, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on Faith. And so Paul did not find his righteousness in himself any longer, but rather found his right standing before the Father in Christ Jesus. I remember in that same book, one chapter earlier, Paul gives a very brief statement that sums up very well the things that we're looking at today. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Well, what does he mean by that? I am living my life in obedience to God. I'm seeking to live and walk in accordance with what God has commanded. I'm living my life in accordance with Scripture, which we have discovered is obeying God's law. Well, how do we do that? Well, he tells us it is God who works in you, both to will or to give you the desire, and to work, to be obedient for his good pleasure. It pleases God that we would have a desire to be obedient and that we would walk in obedience to God. And how does he do that? He is the one at work. Well, how is he at work within us? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and gives us the desire and the ability to walk in obedience to the law of God. So... Not only does God command something of us, not only has God told us how it is that he is pleased, he also does all the work that we would live and walk in obedience to him that he would be pleased in our lives. So fulfilling the law is walking in the spirit. This is the process of sanctification. The judicial, legal requirements of the law have been fulfilled by Christ on our behalf. Case closed. The righteous requirements of the law 
will be fulfilled progressively in a Christian life. That is, sanctification is happening. How? It comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I hope we're seeing this. Our sanctification in our progression through the Christian life, our growth in godliness and righteousness is our walking in accordance with the law of God. And it is happening as a result of one being justified and then the Holy Spirit at work within us. It's not our human effort. It's not works of the flesh. It's not proving anything. It's not seeking to earn anything. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. So let's put all those pieces together. What does this look like to walk in the Spirit? What does our sanctification look like? And in being sanctified, what does it mean that the law of God is being fulfilled? What do we see in the Scriptures about what law fulfillment looks like in the life of a Christian? I have a few items to display that from various texts. First, law fulfillment in the life of a Christian is a genuine love for God and a genuine love for our neighbor. One of the things I love about reading the four Gospels is to see how Jesus responds to the religious leaders of his day. How he responds to the legalists who did not understand the law of God rightly. One of Jesus' response always makes me chuckle a little bit. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees were doing everything that they could do to trip up Jesus. They were trying to catch him saying something wrong so that they could kill him. Verse 34 of Matthew 22 begins, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? So you know right here, the question is like asking, so when did you stop beating your wife? It's really a lose-lose situation no matter how you answer it, right? But Jesus is God, and so he sees right through it all, and his answer is brilliant. He says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I love that. What did he just do there? He leaves this lawyer asking this question, scratching his head. Wait a second. I was trying to trick you, but you tricked me. And Jesus didn't even flinch. He had no desire to discount the importance of God's law. In fact, he elevates it in his teaching. So he answers the question about what the one most important law is by saying, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. In other words... Do the Ten Commandments. That's most important. What does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Commandments 1 through 4. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Commandments 5 through 10. Law fulfilling is a genuine love for God and a genuine love for our neighbor. Number two, law fulfillment is not a means of our justification. We've talked about this several times already. 
but we cannot emphasize it enough. You cannot be justified. You will not be justified by your keeping of the law. The law was already kept on behalf of the believer. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We do not seek to fulfill the law of God because we have to. We do it because we want to. And in doing so, we prove that our hearts have been transformed by the gospel. Third, law fulfillment is not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. It is the presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to walk in obedience to the law of God. That's what Paul tells us in verse 4 of Romans 8, also Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What does he say next? Against such things there is no law. In other words, walking in these things by the Holy Spirit empowering us and working through us, we are fulfilling the law of God. So in order to do that, we need the strength and direction of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, law fulfillment is faith working through love. There's a constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit for power and for direction. We are justified by faith. We also persevere with that same faith. Well, if faith is, as Hebrews 11 tells us, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, we cannot, indeed, we will not persevere without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We will live and move and have our being dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. We persevere by being obedient to God. We are obedient to God when we follow His Law, we follow God's law when the Holy Spirit is at work within us. What does that look like? Again, loving God, loving our neighbor. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Number five, law fulfillment is not perfect in this life. We will never get it 100% right in this life. And if your heart is anything like mine, you may not even bat around 25% in this life because the effects of sin have so taken a beating on the heart. Remember again Paul's words in Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions. Those are strong words. I don't even know why I do what I do. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I hope we all feel the force of that statement. I hope when we are in the middle of sin and thinking about the reality that, of what sin really is, that we really, really hate it, and we are asking ourselves right then and there, why, why, why are you doing this? That's the Holy Spirit crying out in us, you are in sin. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do is what I keep on doing. Why? And as we grow in grace, we will be moving toward holiness 
We will more readily recognize sin in our lives. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to fight it and to avoid it and to move away from it. But we will never reach a place of perfection. We will ask with Paul, why are you doing this? You know you are in sin. But, number six, law fulfillment will be perfect in our glorification. There will come a day when all things will be made new and those who are the saints of God will be given new bodies and will be kept from sin. Perfection will reign forever and ever. So God's perfect law will be fulfilled. We will love God and love others perfectly from that time forward. So we have this great hope to look forward to. Be heavenly minded. The more I look at the scriptures, the more I consider this life, the more I think about my own sin, the more I'm persuaded that the Bible calls us to a high heavenly mindedness. Do not take your mind off your glorification. It is the abolition of sin and the restoration of perfection. How can we not long for that? How can we not pray with the Apostle John, Jesus, come quickly. The law will be perfectly fulfilled in us in glorification. Number seven, law fulfillment will never cease to be the fruit of grace. I will never be more ever than a forgiven sinner. Always in need of the righteousness of Christ on my behalf. The sin-bearing substitute of Christ for my right standing before God. This is how Christ will always forevermore be glorified in my salvation. Even though we will one day be glorified, our previous state does not change. We are sinners saved by grace. We will be forgiven sinners in heaven just the same, only that we will not continue to sin in heaven. But the status never changes. So Christ will always be the only one who is high and lifted up. We will never have grounds for boasting on our own because even our perfection will not have been a work of our own. And our maintaining perfection will not be our own doing, but it will be by the grace of God. Number eight, law fulfillment in this life, although imperfect, provides the proper direction of the Christian life as we make our way toward glorification. The law of God provides direction. It gives us boundaries to walk in. Some of you have been to a shooting range. There are left and right boundaries, typically a post or a sign. Don't shoot beyond this in this direction on the left don't shoot beyond that on the right there are boundaries there are avenues by which we are to go down the law of god provides that direction in our lives we have left and right boundaries is that a a weight a yoke that god has put on us that we would have a burden no it's for our good it's because god, because god loves us and he cares for us 
And he wants to help us to know how to live to please him. Number nine, law fulfillment is sometimes called the law of liberty or the law of Christ. James one twenty five says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the law of liberty. What is liberty? Liberty is us making our own choices. So we pursue law-keeping love in liberty. In other words, I choose to or I want to keep the law, not as a means of salvation. So when do law and liberty become the same thing? Well, when what the law says I have to do becomes that which I want to do. So don't look at the Ten Commandments and say, I have to do this or that. But rather, as believers, we look to the law and say, this is everything that I want to become. This is the life that I want. The law is fulfilled by love within and not by some pressure from without. It's really easy to get people to conform. We could very easily become legalistic and apply peer pressure And get many people to simply conform. But law fulfillment isn't simple conformity motivated by outside pressure. Law fulfillment is love that is stirred up within and worked out in liberty. We do ministry. We live out the Christian life because we have a love flowing from within. Not because I want your approval or because you want mine. And not because we have to do something in order to please God. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Also, the law of Christ. Law fulfillment is guided and enabled by the life and word and spirit of Jesus. Love is pursued when Christ is pursued as our highest treasure and the fulfillment of Righteousness. As we look to Christ, we will walk in obedience to God. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So what is he implying in Galatians 6? What is the law of Christ? Surprise, loving God and loving your neighbor. Lastly, law fulfillment, when rightly understood is entirely about Jesus Christ getting the glory as the one who provides the only ground for our righteousness through faith, our justification, and the only power for our love for God and man, our sanctification. I love seeing this in all the digging into the law of God. As we fulfill the law in our lives as Christians, as we are being sanctified... The fulfilling of the law is a means by which Christ is glorified. How so? Most vividly, in that Christ is honored and displayed in our obedience because it is by His redemptive sacrifice that we are able to walk in obedience. And when we do not walk in the Spirit, and when we are not obedient, Christ is still glorified in that we are not cast away, 
but kept secure and still loved by God because of what Christ has accomplished for us. That is great means for rejoicing. So my imperfect fulfillment of the law in loving God and loving my neighbor is real, God-dependent, Spirit-enabled, Christ-exalting, and it is a love that is based on my justification and not a means to it. My fulfilling of the law in this life is the first fruits of the preparation of the final perfection that Christ will complete in me at His appearing. Romans 8.4 does not say that the entire fulfillment of the law happens in us now, but our walking by the Spirit begins now, and so does our fulfillment of God's law. We are made right before God the Father through the atoning work of God the Son, and we are kept and we are held, we are sanctified by the work of God through the Holy Spirit. God commands obedience to His law, and either we will keep it in our lives, which none of us can and none of us will, and therefore we're condemned already, or Christ has done it on our behalf. And that is the grace of God in the gospel. That He has shown us in His law that we are completely unable and unwilling to live up to His perfect and righteous standard. But by His grace and for His own glory, He has sent Jesus Christ the Son to live a perfect life in fulfillment of His perfect law. And in doing so has called us his own and has credited his perfection to our account and has called us righteous, not guilty, not condemned when we are in Christ Jesus because the law was kept on our behalf and the penalty for our not keeping God's law has been paid on the cross of Jesus. And so the call is to repent of sin, to find your righteousness in Christ and not in yourself, not in your own doing. And when it is found in Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we will live and move and have our being in the work of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us and through us, conforming us to obedience that we would fulfill the law of God in our lives with great joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for revealing to us the great joy of fulfilling your law for our good and for your glory. Thank you, God, that you not simply command something of us and leave us in our sinful state to seek to make it happen on our own because we know as soon as we begin, we fail but rather that you have seen fit in your great love for us to send Christ Jesus our Lord to live in perfect obedience to all you have commanded, to die the death that we deserved as our own penalty, and to grant to us his status as guilt-free as we stand before you, the holy and righteous judge. I pray, Lord, that anyone in here this morning who is under the law, that you would redeem them 
and grant them new life that they would be under the grace of Christ. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would give us a greater love to walk in obedience to what you have commanded. Not as a means of our justification, not as a means of earning something or greater merits or greater standing before you, but in order to bring glory to you and to live lives that are pleasing to you, to live lives that display your glory and your truth and your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word and the glory that is revealed in your law and the gospel of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.